Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning and pray that you'll bless our time together, that you will help us as we begin to make some headway into this section of, of the Old Testament, that you'll give us clarity and understanding. And, and I pray, Lord, that you'll bring our, our hearts and minds together around the truth of your word. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, if, if you're planning on taking the trek with me for the next few weeks... It might be, I don't know if you have, um, you may be, some of you may be Luddites in here, but a cell phone with a Bible app or a Bible or something like that might be helpful because we're going into um, a pretty obscure area of the Bible. Uh, how many of you try, gave, gave the, um, the Bible reading thing a go? You, yeah. uh, gave it a go, yeah. Get to Leviticus, like, done, right? <laughs> uh, Going to happier pastures now. Um, well, I'd like to take, um, we're here together for the next, I don't know, four or five weeks, and then um, I'll probably shift gears. Um, I have a sort of an eight-week block, um, but I think for the last two or three three weeks, we'll shift gears into a different topic. We'll share more about that uh, later. Um, but for these next few weeks, I'd like to just take some time and work through some particular texts in the Minor Prophets. Um, now, I've taught, I believe, here before through the book of Micah, um, so I'll try to avoid Micah, because I've done, you know, we've, we've sort of sat there a little bit before, but I'd like to do a little bit of the, um, uh, of the, um, of the, minor, of the minor Prophets. And, and kind of, you taking pictures today? <laughs> I would have bought my, brought my slimming jacket if I'd have known. <laughs> All right. Okay. So today, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the book of Hosea with you, but I actually give you a larger frame um, for thinking about the minor prophets as a whole. So I'm going to do this in a way that might feel a little bit disjointed. Um, but I, but hopefully it'll all come together at some point toward the end. The first thing I want to talk to you a little bit about is um, our notion of canon or scripture and what the significance of that is and how we go about interpreting the Bible. So when I say the term to you, and I don't, I don't want to presume things here, but when I say something like a, the canon of the Bible, what, what do we mean when we're talking about canon? Um, I mean, th- that, that term, by the way, is a term that has a certain kind of elasticity to it, doesn't it? We can talk about the canon of Western literature, right? Or the canon of, um, I don't know, the, of, of Plato's writings, something like that. So when we talk about the canon, uh, what's the significance of canon? What, come, what mental associations come to your mind and when you hear the term, term canon? The great works. The great works, okay. The approved, right? So when you hear the term canon, we tend to think about approval. And by the way, this, especially within Protestant and Catholic dialogue or yelling, depending on the conversation, I guess. Um, but Pro- Protestant and Catholic dialogue, there's a significant difference in the way in which the language of canon and recognition and determination when it comes to the list of the books that are in or out. Um, so, for example, we don't really have to worry all that much about that because um, the 39 Articles in the Anglican tradition, which, by the way, I do believe is the first 
confession of faith in the Western world, in Christendom, that actually identified which books are canonical and which ones are, are of secondary importance. That's actually quite significant, I think. So, the, so for the Old Testament, it's the books that you know, right, from Genesis all the way, in the way in which we have it ordered, to Malachi. In the Hebrew canon, it would be the 27 books of Genesis all the way to Chronicles. That's how they would order it. And that's a fascinating in, uh, discussion in its own right. But that's how you have the Old Testament canon. And there, there's a lot of debate about how these books got sorted out. I mean, why is a book like Malachi in... Or why is a book like Esther in, that was an especially controversial book. Well, anybody know why? Part of the reason why Esther was so controversial is, do a concordant search on the, just the term God in Esther. God's not there, right? Now, of course, now we believe God is there. But when it comes to sort of formally, God, the name of God or Yahweh's not there. So Esther was a highly contentious book. The Song of Solomon was a contentious book. I mean, that's a kind of hot and sexy book in a way, you know, and that, that, that was contentious. So what books go in? Why is that there? And Judith is not, or Tobit, or Maccabees, or something like that. I mean, these are historical questions that really betray easy solutions. But in time, if I want to sort of give you my own spiel on this, in time when it comes to the Old Testament, the religious group most associated with the temple, that is the Pharisees, tended, were the progenitors to what in time became rabbinic Judaism, and which in time uh, the church as well recognized that they shared the same canon with, with the synagogue. That to me is an important theological point. That is, the church, when it comes to the Old Testament, shares the same canon as the synagogue does. Now, there will be significant points of disagreement when it comes to interpretation, but when it comes to what books we deem authoritative, the synagogue and the church agree on that. And then when you move to the New Testament, there's just an enormous amount of complexity about why is the shepherd of Hermas out and James is in? Martin Luther wasn't all that happy about that, frankly. I don't know if you heard what Martin Luther's opinion of the epistle of James is. He calls it a right, strawy epistle, right? In other words, if it was up to me, James wouldn't be in there. I don't really like James. Um, what, Hebrews. Hebrews is a notoriously complex book. What about Revelation? Scare you to death book like Revelation. So these kinds of questions about canon are complicated um, they betray easy solutions, but I think we rest assured that at some point in time in God's providence, the church has recognized which books are authoritative and which ones are not, or at least are of secondary importance. Now, I'm using the term there, recognition. I think within the Roman Catholic world, the term would probably be determined, right? In other words, the church determines which books are in and which books are out. Now, I'm, I'm a red, hot-blooded Protestant, you know, so I'm going to be a little bit more um, committed to the notion of recognizing rather than determining. But we can't, can't take away from the fact that the question about what books are in or what books are out of the Bible is a creaturely question. It's a question that happens with people, right, and decisions in real time and in real space. And as I tell my students in Beeson all the time, and that's the nature of providence, I mean, if, if you want a Bible that fell out of the sky, um, unrefracted through human hands, then Islam is a good route for you, right? I mean, that's, that's the view on the Quran. 
mean, you know what a translation of the Quran is, right? A translation of the Quran is an interpretation of the Quran according to English, right? Or an interpretation of the Quran according to Spanish or something like that. It's not the Quran. That can only be mediated in Arabic. Whereas you hold up your English Standard Version or new inaccurate version, just joking, new international version, just joking, it's fine, I like it, I like it, I'm just joking, the new, the new, the new international version or the revised standard, whatever, whatever your version of choice is, and that's my kind of view on Bible translations, the best Bible translation is the one that's on your nightstand, right, that's the best one, um, but whatever your, whatever your translation is, what's, what are the gold letters that are in front of the black leather of your Bible? Holy Bible. I mean, we believe that God's Word can be transmitted even through a translated form. So the point of that is, um, the questions about canon as a list, which books are in or which books are out, is one aspect of canon, but it's not the sole aspect. At the core of canon, and a notion of canon, is an understanding that certain books were deemed authoritative in the life of the church. Certain books were deemed to not simply be reports of events, even though they are that, but were understood to be words that continue to give life, that continue to give God's own very self-disclosure to His people. And that is significant. Um, I, I, I mentioned this for those of you who came to the, one, the uh, lesson that we did on the King James Version, but in the early 20th century, there was a big to-do that was made about the Bible as literature. You can see courses in English programs on the Bible as literature. Um, and T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis, both in different contexts, said, I'm sure there are people out there who enjoy the Bible as literature. I've just not met them yet. Right? <laughs> in other words, most people who value the Bible value the Bible because they believe in some notion of divine authority or divine presence or divine mediation being communicated through this um, particular book. And I should say something about this. I mean, this is not on my, my outline. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible's great literature. You know, I, I, Jerome, one of my, my heroes from the early church, Jerome is famous for saying, my learning Hebrew... My leaving of the Latin of Cicero, that beautiful oracular Latin, to leave that and to go to Hebrew, that barbaric language, that was his term, was part of my leaving everything to follow Jesus. In other words, it was an, I tell this to my students at Beeson, you're learning Hebrew, number one, it cuts years off purgatory for you, right? Because <laughs> it's, it's the language of heaven, you're going to have to learn at some point, might as well get out of the way now. Um, so you know, there's, there's heaven, there's, there's that part of it. Um, but the other part of it for, for Jerome was it was an ascetical discipline. I, mean, I, 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 I tease my students, I, no one listens to me here at Beeson on this, but I think you should get spiritual formation credit for taking Hebrew, right? And because this is a hard thing, an, an act of self-denial. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to come into Hebrew and go, oh, I see why this is God's special language. Well, you're going to get in there. And um, matter of fact, the Gospel of Matthew, for example, people have argued that it was originally a Hebrew or Aramaic form that was then translated into Greek. And one of the reasons why people say that is because of its heavily semitized feel. If you read through Matthew, you'll see you'll see the word and all the time. And he did this, and he did that, and, 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 and. That's how Hebrew narrative rolls. And, 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 and. I mean, if you slid that into, you know, Mr. Palmer's English class, 
C minus. You know, it's like that. That's there are lots of ands there. A little bit more creativity, please, in your, your the construction of your prose. So I'm not claiming here that the Bible, whether it's the Hebrew or the Greek, which was kind of street level Greek, not high level Greek. Um, you know, I've taught biblical Greek before in my past. And now I'm sitting with a group of classics people on Fridays we haven't met for a while, reading through Plato's Phaedo in Greek. I thought I knew Greek. Right? Now I'm looking at Plato's Phaedo, I'm going, oh, that's real Greek. Right? I mean, hard Greek. Now, the Bible Greek is street Greek. It's normal Greek. It's not elevated Greek. It's normal communication Greek. So the Bible comes to us in a very human form. Um, but this human form in which it comes to us um, by, its, by a very confession of faith, we recognize that it's not merely that. It's not less than that, but it's actually so much more than that. This is the, these are the very words of God for the people of God, which raises questions about the minor prophets. I mean, listen to this quote here from um, Ben Sira. This is the 2nd century B.C. text, right? Ben Sira 49.10. He says, Then too... The twelve prophets, may their bones flourish with new life where they lie. They gave renewed strength to Jacob and saved him with steadfast hope. Now that's a fascinating claim. They gave strength to Jacob and filled Jacob with hope. I mean, one of the perplexing, I guess, philosophical questions that people through the ages have raised is why is there something and not nothing, right? This is the question that people have been raising since the beginning of time, right? Why are things here instead of not being here? When I guess, equally speaking, it could not be here, right? There might be non-existence. Why is there existence? And that kind of question is a good question to put to something like the minor prophets too. Why are the minor prophets here rather than not here? In other words, I would assume, now I could be wrong on this, But I would assume that Hosea and Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah said a lot more things than we have here. I would assume that. Now, that might not be the case. We'll find out otherwise in another time, right? But I would assume that that's the case. So why do we have this here in the way in which we have it? Ben Sira gives us an answer to that in a way. They gave hope and comfort to Jacob. Because they emphasize the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, if you've read the Minor Prophets at all, and I'm sure you have, you're spending time in Hosea, or Joel, or Amos. Let's think about Nahum, or Habakkuk, um, getting into Zechariah. I mean, there's weird stuff in Zechariah. But predominantly, the word through the Minor Prophets is not, um, it's not champagne-sipping kind of reading. It's... It's a hard word. Judgment is the primary language throughout the whole book. So how can Ben Sira say that the people of Judah found great comfort in this? That brings us to the next point that I want to talk about. And that is, what is the canonical or interpretive significance of the minor prophets in the way in which we have them? So by the time of Ben Sira, this fellow I talked about here in the 2nd century B.C., The understanding was that the prophets were four. You had Isaiah, you had Jeremiah, you had Ezekiel, and the twelve. Now that's interesting to me. 
the twelve. Because we have discrete voices in the twelve, like Hosea and Joel and Amos. But here you have Ben Sirah saying that it's the twelve. So this raises a real issue for us about verb-subject agreement, right? Is it the twelve are interesting or the twelve is interesting? Because there's a move interpretively to understand that these books together do more than what they could do individually left on their own. And at the same time, there's a claim, I think it's quite important claim, that these minor prophets, these twelve voices, are more than the sum total of their individual parts. There's more going on here. So what is some of this more? Well, I kind of, I'm going to give you kind of just a scope here, and I'll stick with just the first six books. You come to the end of Hosea, which is where I want to get to this morning. But you come to the end of Hosea, and there's a call to repentance. This is why I titled the series, Return to the Lord. If there's a running theme that continues through really all of the prophets, but the minor prophets as well, it's return to the Lord. Return to Him. So here you have Hosea saying, return to the Lord. And when you return, He will meet you with grace and kindness and compassion. That's the God that you will meet. And we're going to come back to that. But that repentance that's called for in Hosea um, is never really uh, actualized within the purview of Hosea's own book. It creates an anticipation for a time when that might be. And guess what happens when you come to Joel? You come to the book of Joel, which is a funny book. Why is Joel where it is? We're going to talk about that another week. But then you come to Joel, and what's Joel doing? Joel chapter 2, which was uh, Peter's sermon text on the day of Pentecost, by the way. Joel chapter 2 is an actual embodiment of the repentance that Hosea calls for. So you see the repentance called for in Hosea. You come to Joel, you actually see it embodied in the book of Joel. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Come unto me and I will pour out knowledge on you. Your sons and your daughters will be prophesying. This is what happens in Joel chapter 2. And then you come to Amos. Amos is one of these books that's not really a fun beach read, to be honest with you. Um, but Amos is one of those books, you remember the famous phrase, yea for three, yea for sins, I will, yada, yada, yada. And it goes through and begins all these, tr- against this diatribe against all these nations. For three, yea for four sins. Um, I'm, I'm going to start using that language, I think, with my children. For three, <laughs> yea for four, you will, uh, they won't get that. Um, what, what, does that what, what does that mean? I think what it probably means here is something along the lines of the importance of numbers, numerically. Three plus four is seven, right? Which, you know, becomes an important number really throughout the Bible, but it's a number of what? Of completion or perfection. In other words, I put this positively, the perfection of your sin, right? In other words, the, the sinful habits that you have embodied have reached the level of perfection. Right? It, can't, it can't get better. You've achieved perfection in your unfaithfulness. Because of that, Moab, Tyre, Edom, and the list goes on and on, I will bring my judgment against you. And it's the, it's the kind of move that Paul makes in Romans 1 and 2, where all the, the, um, the, the, the people of God are listening to this and they're going, Amen to that. Go get Tyre, go get Sidon, take down Egypt, take down Babylon, take down Assyria. So they have all these nations that are listening. And then you get to the end, nation number seven. Remember, this number is important. Who's nation number seven? Judah. 
That's when the air leaves the room for the reader. It's like, wait a second, what do you, who? Judah. And then it goes to nation number eight, which is a tack on. In other words, it goes even beyond the seven, and that's Israel as, as a whole. So here you have this judgment against God's people, but even in Amos, there's this, there's this residual reality of hope for the future. But how does Amos end? Amos ends with a diatribe against Edom. And then you move from Amos into Obadiah, that one-chapter book that just is in there. Ever heard a sermon on Obadiah? It's like, I don't think I have, right? What's Obadiah doing? Obadiah is a whole chapter, one book, given as a judgment call against Edom. So Amos ends with Edom. Obadiah takes off with Edom. And then you move into um, Obadiah. Jonah, I was forced to memorize all the books of the Bible as a little boy. It's coming out well now. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Now let's talk about these just for a second, and then we'll go back to Hosea. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Now let's move Micah out of there for a second and put that to the side. Jonah and Nahum. What's the problem with Jonah and Nahum? What's the presentation of the Ninevites in Jonah? The grand enemy of God's people. What happens with the Ninevites there? They repent. They're saved. They're using language in Jonah chapter 3 that's Israel language. I mean, you can, I mean, the Assyrians were a bad bunch, right? And here you have the king of Assyria telling the people to repent. Why? Because perhaps the Lord will have mercy and compassion on us. That doesn't bo- that's, that sounds normal in my house. It doesn't bother me in um, Normal, right? So, so here you have this call here in Jonah, and the king of Nineveh is using language from Joel. We'll see this four times over. Is using language from Joel um, that's in-house language. It's covenantal language. It's Israel language. And as readers, we step back and go, I mean, it raises all kinds of questions. Like, how did he know to say that, right? Well, I don't know, but that's what he says in the book. And as he says this and speaks it, God does what God does. It's how we pick God and the minor prophets out of a lineup and say, and we can say, that one there, number one, not our God. He's not acting according to mercy. But that one in the middle, who's acting according to mercy, that's his fundamental disposition toward his people, that's our God. And he's doing it to the wrong people in Jonah. Jonah didn't like it. God's showing His compassion to them. He's showing His mercy to them. So there's the Ninevites receiving God's grace. I mean, what a strange book Jonah is, right? At the end, God's having this rat-tat-tat with, um, with Jonah. His little kikayon plant, the uh, gird plant, whatever it is. Kikayon is the hurt term. It, it's died over him. Um, Jonah's really just angry, kind of spitting angry. And uh, God says, do you have a right to be so upset about this little plant that you didn't plant it, you didn't make it grow, but it come up one day, came up one day, it was gone the next day. Do you have a right to be angry about that and not have compassion for all these people? 120,000 of them who don't know their right hand from their left. And then all of a sudden, the credits are rolling. You know, it's like, I need five more verses in Jonah to round things out. But that's it. So the credits are rolling. So that's Jonah. Nineveh receives the grace of the Lord. What's Nineveh like in Nahum? It is a bad day. God appears in Nahum as a roaring lion. And the whole book has within its purview God's judgment against 
Nineveh. I mean, that, does that bother you? Bothers me. I mean, here you have Jonah and you have Nahum side by side. Very different portrayals of God's engagement with Nineveh. Um, I mean, this is the, I mean, now, if this helps you sleep tonight, you take this. I've told my students this recently. Is that if you like this theory, go with it, right? Because I'm all for people sleeping well with troubling problems, right? And then the historicized answer is it happened in Jonah the way in which it happened, and then they backslid at some point, and then Nahum happened, which for all intents and purposes may exactly be the case, right? Except for one slight problem. The Bible doesn't say boo about that, right? That may be the case, and it may be a fair, necessary filling in of the gaps. But let's just be clear, it's a filling in of the gaps, right? That's not something where the Bible says, and here, by the way, is the reason why Nahum happened. It doesn't say that. What we're left with are are two very different portrayals of God's engagement with the nations. So here's Micah right in the middle. Now, it's my contention that Micah functions interpretively to help me make sense of this Jonah-Nahum problem that I have. So here's Micah right in the middle. And again, I don't want to bore you with details. But, but really, from a chronological standpoint, Micah shouldn't be where it is. Micah should be Hosea, Amos, Micah. That's how it should be. And by the way, the Greek translation of the, set of the Hebrew Bible orders it that way. In other words, I think the Greek translation recognizes that it's a problem, the chronology that we have in the Hebrew ordering, and it fixes it. So the, so the question is raised, why is Micah where it is? I think Micah is where it is canonically to help me make sense of this Jonah-Nahum conundrum. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. The nations are streaming to Mount Zion to be taught the law of the Lord. And what happens? They come with delight to be taught the ways of God. And when they come, what happens? Famous Martin Luther King Jr. A speech here. Their, um, their swords get beat into what? Into plows. And their, and their spears get beat into pruning hooks. And then the next verse, they're all sitting under the shade of their own home, drinking wine from their family vineyard. That's what happens when the nations stream. Jonah's what happens when the nations stream. God meets them in His mercy and His grace. But elsewhere in Micah 4 and into the middle of Micah 5, the nations that set themselves over against God, who resist God and His kingdom, they meet not the God who pours out His grace, the Father running off the front porch. That's not the God that they meet. They meet the God of Nahum. They meet the God who meets them really in His holy terror as a roaring lion. And I'm not using that metaphor um, unwittingly, that metaphor of the roaring lion seems to trace us through the minor prophets as God meets the nations that resist Him. There's a category of people. Now, brace yourself here. But there's a category of people in the Old Testament that are best understood under the umbrella of, of the anti-elect. They are those who set themselves in their fury against God and His people. Um, and uh, books like Nahum tell us what their ultimate demise will be. It's a hard word. It's a word with a lot of hard angles to it. But there is a group, a category, that's, I think, best understood as the anti-elect. Now, I probably don't, even, don't want this recorded, but I'll go ahead and say it to you all. Um, that's the way 
in our family right now, we're talking about ISIS. And as I think about a way of framing this, again, I, I don't know all the geopolitical, and I mean, there, I mean I'm, you know this and I know this, any historical reality has multiple complex causes that lead up to it. So I don't want to reduce this to something simplistic. But, you know, you think about the Christians in northeast Iraq who have suffered and the children who have suffered who, because they claim the name of Jesus. That is the anti-elect. And I think it is within the purview, our purview as Christians, to pray vociferously against them with that hard language that you read in the Psalms sometimes about God um, tearing them apart. Would you not do that? Now, it raises big questions. And if you want to ask when we have question time, oh, we might not have time, sorry. Um, but if you, if you want to ask questions about that, you feel, feel, free to, feel free to pursue it. Okay. All right, so moving on here. Uh, Jonah, oh, oh, oh to come full circle. That's what I think Jonah and Nahum represent for us. Eschatological future possibilities for the nations. They're real live options for the nations. You can go the route of Jonah and you know the God that you will meet. He runs off the porch for you. Or you can go the way of Nahum's Nineveh and you will meet that God as well. That seems to me to be what the final sort of canonical intentionality is of this very difficult tension that we have with Jonah and Nahum. It is, which nation, which Nineveh will you be? Nations surrounding. Which, which one? Now, um, all right, let's, let's ask questions. But yes, ma'am. I know, I can, I can sense it. You're itching. Yes, ma'am. Great, good, good question. And I mean, this is this is a matter of significant contention. In other words, this is an area where um, Roman Catholicism and the the Protestant West would differ from one another when it comes to, the, to answering the scope of the canon. In other words, which books are in, which books are out. Within the Reformation period, um, and again, the Bible becomes a very significant theological problem in the Reformation. Um, those books like that are called apocryphal or deuterocanonical were deemed to have a secondary status. Now, this is something interesting for those of you red-blooded Protestants like me. That did not mean that they thought those books had no value. They were deemed to be um, actually of value for reading and learning to be inspired, to be encouraged, to learn wisdom. But they could have no role to play in formalized doctrine. In, in other words, helping us formulate the doctrine and the teaching and the life of the church. Um, so when Trent, the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Council, responded to the Reformation, it deemed the apocryphal books to be of equal canonical status to the other books. So in other words, Roman Catholicism's doing of that is a kind of response to a Protestant differentiation between the two. Now, but it's, it's a live debate to this day, I think. Yeah. Yes, sir. Is, is there a, a difference between the Greek Old Testament versus the Hebrew Old Testament? Is there language that's um, Yes. Yes. Matter of fact, that's an area of, of research. I'm I'm writing on this kind of stuff right now. I think it's a fascinating question. A lot of work is being done on this. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, for multiple reasons. Number one, are you if you're bored about this, just leave. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> 
uh, you're, this is a this is a, a rabbit I'll chase. One is um, anytime you have a move from Hebrew or, or any language to a target language, um, something is interpreted. All translations are interpretations in some sense, and it's why some people have said translations are actually acts of tyranny. You know, because they take away from. And I, don't, I don't follow that. But something's probably something's shifted or altered. Um, and you have a very complex matter with the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So that um, some books are translated literally. Um, some books are translated paraphrastically. And that creates all kinds of interesting issues. And then there are other books that aren't just a little tweak here or there, but are substantially different. The book of Jeremiah is half the size in the Greek translation than the Hebrew one. So we're not talking about a couple verses that are off here or there or weird translation. We're talking about a substantially different form of the book. So these things require, I think, some work. Um, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was a, a place where um, they actually found Hebrew text that comported with the Septuagint, the small form. That was a real surprise to people. I think most theories were that Jeremiah was whittled down into a compact form for a Gentile-speaking audience. That was the older theory. Once they actually found a Hebrew text that was short in form, they're like, uh-oh, we've got, we got to change our theory. So the Septuagint is a live problem. And, you know, it was the church, the Bible of the early church. I mean, that is a significant matter. Yeah. Jim? John Dryden did the best translations on 7% effective. So, I mean, that ties into what you're saying. And yeah. I've heard of like, uh, I don't know, he, I mean, the English is what, several times removed from Hebrew or two or three or whatever. So, it's seven days, maybe just a period of time in some other language. And you get this whole literal translation and it. It can, it can be tough because there's not an exact synonym yeah. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to cause nightmares for anybody, but I, you know, I tell my students who take Hebrew at Beast, and I did, just started this new class, and I tell them, you know, I hope you know that learning Hebrew now for you is not going to remove interpretive hurdles. It's going to create lots more because a translation whittles that down for you. And most of the time, well. And as I, I'm... I think you should read your English Bibles with great confidence. I would never want to undercut that. Read it with great confidence. And, but you, when you begin to realize that a certain form can have ten different senses, and you have to, it, 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 it's, it's hard, it takes hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Anti-let. Um, okay, I knew that. Yeah. Bring it. Bring it. Well, did you mean the Christians there are the anti-elect or the members of ISIS? Oh, I'm sorry. The members of ISIS. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The members of ISIS. Yeah. I mean, those who set themselves up, those who set themselves up over against um, God and His people. And when I say God, I mean the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, and yeah. that that really purposes towards um, Andrew Pearson's Warden Adventure, which is basically, I think, of the Corey Ten Boom. Pray for your captors. You know, pray for them. Yeah. Because that's the call. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the hard word. And that's the hard word. Yeah. 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 Any other questions? So yes, sir. Oh, no, yes, ma'am. Which, and then Matt. Which English translation do you think is best? Yeah. You know, I just, I, I just don't have much of a dog in that fight. I um, I've, I bought the RSV. What's on your nightstand? What's that? What's on your nightstand? Probably the RSV. It's it's the um, it's the King James version, sort of updated um, with newer manuscripts. 
The, the Bible of choice at Beeson Divinity School is the ESV, the English Standard Version, which frankly is an update of the RSV. I mean, they don't, I don't know if they, they, you know, say all this publicly, but when it came to any difficult interpretive issue on the ESV committee, whatever the RSV did, they went with it. What is the Bible in the pew? The one every now and then we find in the pew. Yeah, you're, the one pew Bible in every ten pews. Um, <laughs> I've noticed that. Um, I, I think it's actually not uniform. I've seen RSVs. As there, I think I've even seen an ESV. Have I seen an NIV in our pew? I mean, the NIV, I like the NIV. And frankly, when it comes to the Old Testament, the NIV can be one of the best. Um, but you know, you're dealing with the translation committee, so things can be hit and miss. But the NIV is what's called a dynamic equivalence. So instead of trying to be literal, best we can, word for word, it's aiming for what the sense is. And that just lends... I don't think that's bad. I'm not, we all have to do that in some way. But that lends itself to a more interpretive um, translation, which is why when you hear people speaking negatively about it, it's probably because of that. I've been surprised how good the NIV can be on the Old Testament. Really good. Um, yeah. Matt? Which some people almost viewed that Tolkien had kind of a racist view of people from that part of the world, and yet on a religious level, he seemed to understand that at times there was a profound and deep commitment and opposition to the Trinitarian notion of God that we understand. And you mentioned ISIS, I can't help but think of those armies of the East in that in that book, which yeah. you know, next revival probably greatest thing ever written. <laughs> That's all right. And so there's 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 an example there, and what we think of as Christian literature, yeah, as well. From coming from a Roman Catholic, it's still yeah. have an understanding that there are yeah. the Old Testament sensibilities. Yeah. I don't have my head around this, and some of you are more geopolitically aware and have a much more nuanced understanding of these things, but. But then this is a clash of civilizations in a way that I don't think we're really coming to terms with. I, you know, it, it, de- it demands significant prayer, I think. Um, and, I, you know, I, again, I need to be careful what I say because I'm still trying to formulate my thoughts on it. But um, these, are, these are significant shifts that are occurring. Um, and, it, you know, it raises lots of questions in that regard. Yeah. Jocelyn? For jihad. And um, it's kind of chilling to read because it's like, in some ways, what maybe some Old Testament would have been for the Jews to say to get rid of the people in the land. And it's kind of, Hmm. I don't want to say it's the same, but I don't believe the God of the Quran is the same as the God of the Old Testament. But the, the final verdict was to kill. Yeah. All the people, the children, the animals, to eradicate them. Yeah. And it kind of was. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little disturbing to read these verses from the Quran that they're taking yeah. so literal yeah. as their holy yeah. war and realize. Yeah, we got some of those in our Bible too. Yeah. Okay. Class dismissed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, jo- I'm joking. Um, 
the, the issue of well, the technical term for that is harem, harem warfare in the Old Testament. It, it, you know, my, my own doctoral supervisor jokingly said one time that, you know, every Old Testament scholar has to deal with that and probably best at the end of their career. You know, <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult issue. Um, I, will, I don't want to sort it out. There are many different interpretive understandings of what that actually is in Deuteronomy and in other places, whether or not it, it was actually even meant to be um, the hyperbolic character of some of it and the way it was actually worked out. I mean, big questions. But I do think it's fair enough to say whatever we do with those particular episodes, those episodes were not symbolic of an ongoing activity with Israel's posture vis-a-vis the surrounding nations. Um, and others, that did not become policy for how th- these were one-off events. And again, I have my own sort of wrestling with how to come to terms with that. But these are one-off events that aren't necessarily symbolic of a general posture toward the surrounding nations. In fact, you know, these are all sort of countervailing things within the Bible itself. In Leviticus, in you know, 17 to 19, the people's purchase of the covenant of even being in the land itself depended on their being kind and gracious to their neighbors. If you're not kind and gracious to your neighbors, if you're not open to the alien sojourner in your land, in the surrounding lands, then you forfeit your right to the covenant. Um, So how one recognizes harem warfare and how that functions as an ongoing sort of foreign foreign policy, I don't think that those comport. But I don't want to in any way mitigate the fact that there are times when we read things in the Bible that make us highly uncomfortable. And coming to terms with them is not um, not always simple. Yeah. Yes, sir. Oh, I thought I saw a hand. <laughs> this is my glass. All right. Well, let's close in prayer, shall we? Um, Lord, thank you for these friends, and I, and Lord, thank you for your word, um, Augustine, uh, the father of our church, one of the fathers of our church, told us that the Bible is simple enough for children to get its main point, and yet complex enough to keep scholars wrestling forever. And so, Lord, I I pray that you'll keep us humble before your word. And and as we make our way through some of these texts in the Minor Prophets, give us a sense of who you are and, and your ways in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.